recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Begonia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 5th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, Melissa and I are in the Philadelphia, or the Philadelphia suburbs, and we will be here through the weekend when we plan on heading west to western Pennsylvania and Ohio, and ultimately, hopefully by Tuesday evening, to see Clifton Emmerheiser and to spend some time with, with Clifton. We had some um, vehicle problems and setbacks last week that we overcame, and praise Yahweh, everything worked out well, and the van made it. It made it this far. (laughs) Before returning to positive Christianity in the Third Reich, we are going to briefly discuss Hitler's affirmation of Christianity. In the three speeches mentioned by Caius Fabricius earlier in the first part of this booklet, those speeches were given in January and August of 1934 and show that Hitler continued to openly and sincerely profess support for Christianity after he had come to power. It is a ridiculous contention of pagan or secular so-called white nationalists who aren't really white nationalists at all, they're just white Jews, that Hitler only spoke of Christianity as a pretense to gain the support of the common people. That is a blatant lie. In his speech of January 30th, 1934, Adolf Hitler said in part, in past decades, it would have been more meaningful, more honest, and above all, more Christian not to have supported those people who consciously destroyed healthy life, referring to the Jews, rather than to oppose those whose sole purpose it is to avoid what is unhealthy, And just as we see today, we see the same thing in Weimar, Germany, where most mainstream Christians, believing the things that they read in the news media, believing the things that the powers that be tell us, worship the Jews over Jesus and despise their own countrymen who attempt to warn them of Jewish treachery. We're seeing the same patterns in America today that Germany suffered in the Weimar Republic. Moreover, Hitler said on January 30th, 1934, to adopt the policy of laissez-faire in this area is not only an act of cruelty to individual innocent victims, but an act of cruelty to the entire German people. And in other words, Hitler, as many places in Mein Kampf, demonstrate, and and in his policy, Hitler was not a libertarian either, and considered it unchristian to be so. This must be understood within the framework of the decadence of the Weimar years. In Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler wrote at great length of the decadence in Berlin, in Germany as a whole, of the syphilis epidemics that Germany had been suffering after World War I, 
the, the, um, the, the prostitution, the filth. He, he didn't go into details, but we have documentation at Christianian.org that in the Weimar Republic, drugs, alcohol, tobacco were all being advertised very heavily, just like they are in America today. And homosexuality, if we have to call sodomy by its politically correct name, sodomy and lesbianism were promoted openly and publicly in, in daily German public life, just like it is in America today. If it weren't for Adolf Hitler, the world would have sunk to the levels, to its current levels, 50 or 60 years ago. Adolf Hitler set back the Jewish agenda to introduce Sodom and Gomorrah worldwide by 60 or 70 years. But it's happening today because Adolf Hitler lost. In a speech in Koblenz later in 1934, August 26th, Hitler spoke to the Germans of the Saar, the Saar land, and he said, no, in, in part, this is a much longer speech, we'll only read two paragraphs. He said, no, it is not we that have deserted Christianity ad, by addressing some of his skeptics. It is those who came before us who deserted Christianity. In other words, by accepting those Jews that he spoke about in his January 30th speech, by accepting those Jews who he had mentioned earlier, by German politicians accepting the Jews, they are deserting Christianity. By Christian people accepting the persons of the Jews, according to the second epistle of John, verses 9 through 11, they are deserting Christianity. And Adolf Hitler knew that. He goes on to say, we have only carried through a clear division between politics which have to do with terrestrial things and religion which must concern itself with the celestial sphere. There has been no interference with the doctrine of the confessions or with their religious freedom, nor will there be any such interference. On the contrary, the state protects religion, though always on the one condition that religion will not be used as a cover for political ends as it has been so many times in recent American history, as it is being used as a cover for political ends today, where these Zionist bastard Jews pull the heartstrings of American Southern Baptists and, and, and other Christians and, and get them to feel as if it's an honor to go to Iraq and fight for the Jew bankers on Wall Street. Hitler goes on to say, National Socialism neither opposes the church nor is it anti-religious. But on the contrary, it stands on the ground of real Christianity. And then he says, for their interests cannot fail to coincide with ours alike in our fight against the symptoms of degeneracy in the world of today, in our fight against a Bolshevist culture, against atheistic movement, against criminality, and in our struggle for a consciousness of a community in our national life. 
These are not anti-Christian. These are Christian principles. And I believe that if we should fail to follow these principles, then we should be able to point to our successes. But a result of our political battle is surely not unblessed by God. And Hitler really truly believed that he was acting as a sincere Christian and that he was on the side of right, and he was. He was simply not destined to win because right was not destined to prevail under Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler being a man, neither was he perfect. Adolf Hitler's Christian profession remained consistent and unshaken, even by tragic events, such as the von Stauffenberg bomb, which almost took his life and which took the lives of several of his colleagues, or even by Germany's imminent defeat in 1945. There are recorded speeches containing Hitler's appeals and prayers to his Christian God almost to the moment of his death. We, identity Christians, understand that in the end, (laughs) Yahweh God shall not disappoint Adolf Hitler. Now we shall continue with our presentation of Positive Christianity in the Third Reich by Professor D. Caius Fabricius. And this week I also learned that from a friend and a listener that the D stands for doctor. It's how the Germans abbreviate the title. We left off in the middle of part one, the religious policy of national socialism. And item one of Fabricius's description of what National socialists reject. First, he describes the rejection of liberalism, and now we shall continue with item two, which describes the national socialist rejection of attacks on Christianity. Caius Fabricius, who I looked, uh, I actually looked today um, just out of curiosity, and the man does not have a Wikipedia page. And I found that interesting, and and I was impressed with the idea that perhaps he doesn't have a Wikipedia page because Wikipedia would have to admit that a rather distinguished German theologian believed National Socialism to be Christian and supported it 100%. Caius Fabricius, what we reject attacks on Christianity. More alien to the essence of national socialism than the separation of church and state is any attack on Christianity. And we've seen Fabricius attest that church and state should not be separated. And we have seen in Christianity, in in identity Christians, properly identity Christians should believe that Yahweh God, that Yahshua Christ, Jesus Christ, is the only legitimate state, and only he is king, we don't abide in, in the idea that men should formulate states in that manner. However, we understand in this time of punishment and, and this time under what we would term as mystery Babylon, we understand why they would. The formation of the National Socialist State was a defense mechanism by which Adolf Hitler desired 
to defend the German people from world Bolshevism and Jewish supremacy. And now we all suffer under it. More alien to the essence of National Socialism than the separation of church and state is any attack on Christianity. Antagonism to the Christian religion is much more compatible with the spirit of Jewish materialism rejected by the party program and closely corresponds to the spirit of Bolshevism, the deadly foe of national socialism. And all white nationalists should take note because Fabricius's words are right on the money. If, as in Marxism, material pleasures and manual labor are to be regarded as the highest values, and time-honored institutions are to be trampled underfoot while spiritual values are held to be merely elusive phantoms, and it is considered unworthy for any human being to believe in a higher life, then it must naturally follow that churches are blown up, priests deprived of their rights or even murdered, the propagation of religious beliefs forbidden, and all suspected of piety subjected to suffering. And yes, we saw all those things in the Bolshevik Revolution and in the history of the Soviet Union afterwards. National Socialism, on the other hand, as a movement emanating from within and testifying at every turn how great is the power of the spirit, perpetually striving to awaken man's noblest instincts, summoning him to obedience, to respect, to self-abnegation, and to sacrifice. Would it contradict itself? Nay, more, it would destroy itself were it in any way to promote anti-Christian activities or to tolerate such machinations even in their very beginnings. Marxism coined the phrase that socialism is as much opposed to Christianity as fire is to water. And it may be here, it may here be said of National Socialism, its relationship to anti-Christian activities is as that of fire to water. And if there should be, still be a few individuals in Germany today who with regard to this point prefer to swim in the old channel of the last era, scoffing at priests and devout people after the manner of Marxist freethinkers, looking askance at anyone professing to be a Christian, even preventing him, perhaps, from attending public worship, and looking upon the clergy of a Christian church as second-rate citizens, then it is a sign that such people have not yet grasped the significance of the new era, meaning the transformation from the Weimar years to the National Socialist years, and are rather to be considered as a grave menace to the peace and inner strength of the German folk. But in passing, another misconception must be removed. This refers to the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. And of course, all identity Christians should know that there is no relationship between Christianity and Judaism except that Judaism is the 
absconding for themselves by the Jews, by these people now known as Jews, of the Old Testament religion. They've stolen it, they've perverted it, they've corrupted it, and now they claim to be the people of the book. And all identity Christians should know that they certainly are not. Now, the National Socialists did not really know that. They didn't understand it. But Adolf Hitler certainly believed that Christianity was a religion fully reflecting the Aryan spirit and the God which Aryans should worship. But in passing, another misconception must be removed. This refers to the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Long before the rise of National Socialism, there were certain national literary circles amongst the intelligentsia of the upper middle classes of pre-war days, meaning the days before World War I, who, for the sake of their German nationality, believed it necessary to reject Christianity as being historically connected with Judaism on the appearance of National Socialism and its attacks on a Jewish supremacy in our folk, these intelligentsia thought the moment had arrived for a similar attack on Christianity. This point of view is definitely rejected by the clause referred to in the party program, meaning the 24th point of the NSDAP party program, and it is unnecessary to examine it further here because that point fully supports Christianity as the faith of Germany and the NSDAP. Besides, it is clear that the spirit of the Christian faith has nothing to do with Judaism, the Judaism we national socialists are combating. Our attacks are directed against the present-day Judaism, the ally of the powers of destruction, which in all secrecy, through the agency of banks, bourses, meaning the public stock exchanges, the international stock exchanges, and press, seeks to rule the world. We oppose the mixture of our race with that of the Jews. Moreover, we have liberated our folk from the dominating power of Judaism and are constantly on a defensive against all attempts to renew this supremacy. But nothing is further from our intention than to confuse the spirit of this kind of Judaism with the Christian religion and to attack the Christian faith as Jewish. Such an act would be an absolute contradiction both to the essence of Christianity and to the spirit and program of national socialism. And therefore we see how long the slanders, some of these slanders made by so-called white nationalists today against Christianity, we see how long they've been in existence. They date in Germany back to the late 19th century. Martin Luther detested the Jews and never saw Christianity as being connected to Judaism. Part three of um, Fabricius's section here on what we reject is entitled Substitutes for Religion. And he continues, National Socialism has as little desire to found a new religion as it has to attack Christianity. 
Attempts of this kind must be rather considered a menace to the unity of the folk demanded by National Socialism. It is already an historical disaster that the German folk is fated to have not only one but two great Christian bodies, the evangelical and the Roman Catholic churches. Why statesmanship of the highest order and a personal desire for peace is constantly demanded to preserve the inner solidarity of the folk under such conditions. But how increasingly great is the difficulty when a third religion confronts the two great Christian churches and in opposing them claims the right of calling itself the one and only future religion of the German folk. The difficulty, however, becomes a very grave danger when the exponents of such a new religion declare their ideas to be the philosophy of life in actual agreement with the spirit of the German race and with national socialism. Fabricius is being a lot easier on Germanic pagans than Adolf Hitler was. Adolf Hitler simply thought they were clowns. If we investigate the substance of the new religion that would appear to be offered to the German people as a substitute for Christianity, we are filled with a deep and genuine dismay. First of all, we get the impression that it is not the case of one religion, but of a great many. And men of learning, as well as various writers, dispute as to which of their systems is to become the true spiritual food of the German folk. It is to be expected, however, that these learned men and writers will continue to disagree as they have hitherto been doing. And so we have a picture that is both bewildering and disintegrated, and is likely to remain so. Thus, there is danger of not only a third, but of a fourth, fifth, and even more cults being founded, each of which lays claim to be the only true religion of the folk, and all the pagans are liars. Neither are the doctrines expounded in these new religions at all promising. Some are simply echoes of Christianity, and, and I would like to say that I've seen comments on... Um, the Expelled a Parasite website lately from a supposed follower of Wotanism. And, and, and many of the key precepts that he listed as his um, Wotanist doctrines are simply echoes of Christianity. And, and the man is basically an idiot that doesn't understand anything about Christianity or he would understand that. Some are simply echoes of Christianity. Others, and to a greater extent, are reminders of the philosophy of the rationalists with their glorification of humanity and reason, or of Nietzsche's naturalism, and, and that's probably Nietzsche, but I'll mispronounce it, I'm sure, more often, or of Nietzsche's naturalism with his deification of those who are in communion with nature and are critical of culture. Sounds like a tree-hugging Jew. Sometimes, too, there is a revival of Indian ideas of self-redemption, and Fabricius is referring to Hinduism. All of these beliefs, however, are but pale wraiths lacking the force, the depth, and the riches originally peculiar to those thoughts and systems. Neither is surrender to what is supernatural and superhuman, the predominant feature of these new cults. 
Rather, do we find a glorification of nature and of man in particular, who is held to be sufficient unto himself and capable of pertaining, uh, of attaining perfection by himself? The basic principle of these new cults is accordingly the same as in the case of the older movements of free thought and free religious beliefs of the last epoch. The only difference is that these same ideas which were considered applicable to mankind in general are now spoken of as being essentially Germanic. And let me say that Nietzsche's humanism is likened to here by by Fabricius And it is really no different from Jewish materialism. Today, there are many fools who esteem themselves to be followers of some sort of ancient pagan Germanism, and they are also adherents of Nietzsche. They do not realize that they are actually following something which essentially amounts to Judaism for the Goy. Nietzsche is Judaism for the Goy, examining the true religion of the Jews, which is documented throughout their Talmud, the Jews believe that man, and especially the Jews themselves, are ultimately their own Messiah, and they are their own God. Nietzsche also esteemed that man could somehow become God. Examining the Talmud, the Jewish commentaries on the biblical law are representative of Jewish moral relativism. And Nietzsche also promoted the idea of moral relativism. Nietzsche himself admitted, and, and I thank a commenter at the Daily Stoner website where my um, first broadcast in this series had been posted, Nietzsche himself admitted, while he feigned surprise, that Baruch Spinoza preceded him in many of his own ideas. And that Spinoza, whose primary influence, Spinoza was a Jew, whose primary influence was indeed the Jewish Talmud, Spinoza expressed and advocated many of the same ideas which Nietzsche expressed and advocated. Now, even if it's insisted that Nietzsche did not do it knowingly, which I believe is implausible, Nietzsche's philosophy is rooted in the Jewish Talmud and in Jewish materialism hiding behind a naturalist facade. It's basically Judaism for the Goy. Today's Germanic neo-pagans also, in addition to following Nietzsche, also follow many of the beliefs of the Hindus. Doing this, they somehow imagine that modern Hindu beliefs are somehow representative of some imagined primordial Aryan religion. But there is no real evidence beyond the contentions of some wishful thinking linguists that the Vedas are actually as old as the claims which are made for them. The claims of linguists that the Vedas date to the second millennium BC are all based upon purely subjective and speculative linguistic so-called evidence. This is in spite of the fact that there is no known writing in India which predates the 3rd century BC and the arrival of the Greeks. Western writers, meaning the ancient historians, 
were absolutely ignorant of most Vedic traditions until much more recent times. And there is no documentation at all of the existence of the Vedic literature until the later parts of the first millennium A.D. Now, there are some inscriptions in some Greek writings, rather late, 2nd century B.C., which attest to some aspects of things found in the Vedas. But there is no real proof at all that the Vedic literature, which is known to us today, is even that old. There's no proof. The Germanic poetry found in the Eddas, the Icelandic Eddas, reflect many religious beliefs, which are also found not only in the Hebrew Bible, but in the paganism of the Greeks, the paganism of the Romans, the Greek and Roman poets, in the inscriptions of the Assyrians, the Sumerians, and the Babylonians. So a common tradition can be said to underlay all of them. The Hebrew Bible and Mesopotamian and European and Germanic paganism. But to what extent the Vedas are actually and purely Aryan cannot be said because they come from a culture which was an amalgamation of diverse races at a very early time. And they therefore cannot be imagined that they represent an original Aryan religion. That is a false conclusion. They do not represent any original Aryan religion. They're just another perverted branch which has underlying similarities to the Western and Mesopotamian religions. Back to Caius Fabricius. All such aims meaning those of the followers of the Hindus or Nietzsche and their motives, all such aims are contradictory to national socialism. The Fuhrer, with their, the Fuhrer with the exemplary modesty characteristic of his whole being decisively forbids any honor to be paid to him which is fitting for God alone. And all genuine national socialists follow his example. When the Fuhrer states on occasion that he, quote-unquote, has faith in the German folk, and when we national socialists profess our, quote-unquote, faith in the Fuhrer, that does not mean the conception of a new religion. It is simply a confession of trust and confidence between man and man and is included in our trust in God, but is by no means that trust in the divine power itself. We are well aware that the Fuhrer himself has made frequent mentions of it, too, that we are only instruments in the hand of divine providence. However great that human endeavor may be, which has been so effectual in the great turn of history we are now experiencing, and which is still effectual, and we likewise refuse to deify those earthly forces which laid the foundation of the German uprising, and are still basic principles. Race, blood, soil, freedom, honor are to us high values, and it is of lasting worth that National Socialism has so firmly impressed the supremacy and importance of these forces and virtues upon an uprooted mankind and a sick folk, the uprising being the rise of the NSDAP and the removal of Weimar Germany from the hands of the Jews and the bankers.
We will not dare. We will not dare and not relax our enthusiasm for those sublime things. But we know that such things, sublime and glorious as they may be, are yet of this earth and are human, so that although we may consider them as willed and created by God, we must not look upon them as supreme divinities themselves. These facts require constant reiteration in the full light of publicity, not only for the sake of the matter itself, but also because we know that in other countries, the enemies of New Germany are busily engaged in spreading slanderous reports as to how Germany is in the thraldom of paganism and that Christians are being persecuted by the state for their faith's sake. News of this alarming description are not only reported by Christians, but are also propagated by Jews and pagans and the foreign press, if at all hostile to Germany, wallows in such reports and gives them full publicity, particularly in those papers that in past years completely ignored ecclesiastical questions. These slanders are published with the intention of prejudicing Christians of every other land against Germany so that they may close their ranks and form as solid a front as possible against our folk. And today's Germanic neo-pagans are continuing the same propaganda against the Reich. They're continuing the same Jewish propaganda against the Reich that the Jews began in the 1930s. The Jew perpetuates this propaganda most of all. However, because the Jew does everything he can to prevent Christians from discovering the true anti-Jewish nature of Christianity, Hitler understood the true nature of Christianity. He understood that Christianity was absolutely contrary to Jews. Therefore, Jews must continue to dissuade Christians from Hitler, and they do it to this very day so that Christians can continue to be duped by Jews. The neo-pagans assisting the Jews in this endeavor, neo-pagans, Germanic pagans are only whores for the Jews, and they're too, they're too stupid to know it. Back to Fabricius. We must defend ourselves against such defamations. I'm sorry, I needed a drink. Today, the German people amongst the nations of the earth is the strongest bulwark against all the powers of darkness threatening the overthrow of Christian culture. Indeed, we may say, the powers of dissolution and disintegration that with sinister and diabolical strength are striving for mastery in the world today are nowhere so effectually repulsed as in national socialistic Germany. For these reasons, all foreign nations who fight us as being non-Christian in their eyes find themselves in very torturous and most dangerous paths.
and insofar as they are Christians themselves, combat in their appalling delusion those very things for which they should stake their lives. In other words, the Christians of the West, especially of America, Canada, Britain, those Christians should have joined Hitler in his fight against the Jews. They should have joined Hitler in, their, in his fight against world Jewry, and instead they enlisted the Jews because the Jews were printing their money, and they still do. In view of this situation predominant in the world at present, it is doubly important for us to defend national socialism unceasingly and untiringly against the defamatory, defamatory reports that it favors paganism, be it openly or secretly, and desires on the strength of its authority to introduce a substitute. For the Christian religion. Adolf Hitler and National Socialism were Christian in principle. While Hitler was often disappointed and even disgusted with some of the practices of the religious denominations, he understood that National Socialism, as he had outlined it, was much closer to real Christianity than the practices of the religious denominations. Therefore, he felt that the German nation could implement true Christianity by public policy in spite of the religious denominations without meddling with the denominations themselves. In this light, we may read from Volume 1, Chapter 3 of Mein Kampf. But even though there is much that can really be said against the various religious denominations, Political leaders must not forget that the experience of history teaches us that no purely political party in similar circumstances ever succeeded in bringing about a religious reformation. Hitler understood that the, Christian, that the churches needed reform, but knew that it was not the government's role to make it happen. Therefore, he said in Volume 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, that the movement steadfastly refuses to take up any stand in regard to those problems which are either outside of its sphere of political work or seem to have no fundamental importance for us. It does not aim at bringing about a religious reformation, but rather a political reorganization of our people. It looks upon the two religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people, and therefore it makes war on all those parties which would degrade this foundation on which the religious and moral stability of our people is based to an instrument in the service of party interests. True Christianity is nationalist, and that assertion can certainly be established from Scripture. Therefore, Hitler was justifiably chagrined with the foreign missions of the churches while they were neglected, while they neglected poor Germans at home. Speaking of eugenics as well as race, Hitler said in Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, it would better accord with noble human aspirations if our two Christian denominations 
would cease to bother the Negroes with their preaching, which the Negroes do not want and do not understand. It would be better if they left this work alone and if in its stead they tried to teach people in Europe kindly and seriously that there is much more that it is much more pleasing to God if a couple that is not of healthy stock were to show loving kindness to some poor orphan and become a father and mother to him rather than give life to a sickly child that will be a cause of suffering and unhappiness to all. Adolf Hitler believed in eugenics, but he believed in a kind and gentle eugenics by discouraging people unfit to have children through Christian exhortation, not through mandatory sterilization, not by force or compulsion, but thought that the churches should be engaged in that, should be centered on the German people and not concerned with the Negroes abroad, who can never be Christians. For Book 2, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, Hitler demonstrates that his own understanding greatly transcends that of both German Catholics and German Protestants. And he says, the ability which the Jew has displayed in turning public attention away from himself and giving it another direction may be studied also in what is happening today. And of course, we see today in this very day and age that these words could be spoken of the Jew as well. That this is still their tactic that their media is still expert at this. And they get away with it here all the time. In 1918, he says, there was nothing like an organized anti-Semitic feeling. I still remember the difficulties we encountered the moment we mentioned the Jew. We were either confronted with dumbstruck faces or else a lively and hefty antagonism the same thing we would get in Christian churches in America today. He goes on to say, the efforts we made at the time to point out the real enemy to the public seemed to be doomed to failure. But then things began to change for the better, though only very slowly. The League for Defense and Offense was defectively organized, but at least it had the great merit of opening up the Jewish question once again. In the winter of 1918-1919, a kind of anti-Semitism began slowly to take root. Later, on the National Socialist Movement, we presented the Jewish problem in a new light, taking the question beyond the restricted circles of the upper classes and small bourgeois. We succeeded in transforming it into the driving motive of a great popular movement. But the moment we were successful in placing this problem before the German people in the light of an idea that would unite them in one struggle, the Jew reacted. He resorted to his old tactics. With amazing alacrity, he hurled the torch of discord into the patriotic movement and opened a rift there. In bringing forward the ultramontane question 
and in the mutual quarrels that it gave rise to between Catholicism and Protestantism lay the sole possibility, as conditions then were, of occupying public attention with other problems and thus ward off the attack which had been concentrated against Jewry. The men who dragged our people into this controversy can never make amends for the crime they then committed against the nation. Anyhow, the Jew has attained the ends he desired. Catholics and Protestants are fighting with one another to their heart's content, while the enemy of Aryan humanity and all Christendom is laughing up his sleeve. And today they do the same thing. They play the same distractions, and they're much more sophisticated. Today it's gay rights against Christians. It's liberalism against conservatism. It's Republicans against Democrats. It's all a game because we're all playing in the Jewish sandbox, and we will never get anywhere until we see the devil lurking outside. Look at the ravages, Hitler continues, from which our people are suffering daily as a result of being contaminated with Jewish blood. Bear in mind the fact that this poisonous contamination can be eliminated from the national body only after centuries or perhaps never. Think further of how the process of racial decomposition is debasing and in some cases even destroying the fundamental Aryan qualities of our German people, so that our cultural creativeness as a nation is gradually becoming impotent, and we are running the danger, at least in our great cities, at falling to the level where southern Italy is today. And, and we see this is absolutely true of America today. What America is going through today, Germany went through in the Weimar Republic after World War I. Germany went through it, Hitler rose up against it and was defeated, and today we all suffer the same fate. Look at our great cities, formerly great cities, Detroit, Cleveland, New York, Atlanta, Baltimore, niggers are running wild and have destroyed all of our great cities. Hitler continues, this pestilential adulteration of the blood of which hundreds of thousands of our people take no account is being systematically practiced by the Jew today. Systematically, these Negroid parasites in our national body corrupt our innocent fair-haired girls and thus destroy something which can no longer be replaced in this world. America and Britain defeated Adolf Hitler, and now American and British churches preach the acceptance and endorse and encourage this same thing in our nations. We have reaped what we sowed. The two Christian denominations look on with indifference Today, they promote it. They don't look on it with indifference. In Germany, in the 1930s, they looked on it with indifference. Today, the American Christian denominations promote race mixing. The true Christian denominations look on with indifference at the profanation and destruction 
of a noble and unique creature who is given to the world as a gift of God's grace. For the future of the world, however, it does not matter which of the two triumphs over the other, the Catholic or the Protestant, but it does matter whether Aryan humanity survives or perishes. And yet the two Christian denominations are not contending against the destroyer of Aryan humanity, but are trying to destroy one another. Everybody who has the right kind of feeling for his country is solemnly bound, each within his own denomination, to see to it that he is not constantly talking about the will of God merely from the lips, but that in actual fact he fulfills the will of God and does not allow God's handiwork to be debased. For it was by the will of God that men were made of certain bodily shape, were given their natures and their faculties. Whoever destroys his work wages war against God's creation and God's will. And Adolf Hitler understood that the Jew was the antithesis to the creation of God and actively sought to destroy it. Today in Christianity, only Christian identity realizes this. We would assert that Christian identity is the reformation which Adolf Hitler had been praying for, but never lived to see. Now that we have presented the first part of Fabricius's part one, the religious policy of national socialism, which was subtitled, What We Reject, we will conclude this program because of our technical difficulties. And next week, in the next part of this presentation, we will continue with his presentation of what we affirm which indeed is positive Christianity. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry for the technical problems that they were out of my control and I just simply didn't have sufficient warning of them to do something better about it. I will be back here next week with positive Christianity in the Third Reich and part three of our presentation. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.